Nature Bets Last on the Progressive Radio Network. It's NBL on PRN.FM. This May 4th, 2021 edition, episode 150 of Nature Bets Last, comes to you live from Rakino Island in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and also from southern Vermont in the United States. This is Kevin Hester, and I'm again joined today by my co-host, Professor Guy McPherson. Today's show includes conversation with Dr. Jamie Hick. Guy, would you do the honors, please? Thank you, Kevin. We are pleased to have Dr. Jamie Hecht join us for the show today for the second time. He also served as our guest on May 31st, 2016. I would encourage you to find that episode in the archives and give it a listen. The conversation I had with Dr. Hecht on May 31st, 2016 remains the most gratifying one I've had during nearly seven years on this show. Double Dr. Heck, welcome to the Nature Bats Last Show on the Progressive Radio Network. Thank you so much, Guy. It's a real pleasure to be your guest again. Thank you. We will be taking your toll-free calls today. For those out there listening, please call us with your questions and comments after we spend a bit of time with our guest. We are most easily reached with a toll-free telephone call to 888-874-4888. That's 888-874-4888. Dr. Hack, again, thanks for joining us today. I would like to start off with a question about your personal history. You're one of the rare individuals to secure a PhD, grab the brass ring in the form of a tenure-track position, leave the academy for other work, and then return to university life to earn a doctorate in psychiatry. Please take your time in telling us about this meandering path and the kind of work it leads you to do today. Oh, uh Sure. Thank you for asking. Um, I didn't, in fact, uh, wind up studying psychiatry, but psychoanalysis, um, which doesn't involve um, medical training. Um, I began as a professor of literature, went to Brandeis and uh, wrote about poetry, mostly Hart Crane, the American uh, poet, and uh, Dylan Thomas, a Welsh poet, but also John Keats, who wound up becoming important from the psychoanalytic angle a little later, as I might get to, and had um, a number of publications uh, when I got onto the job market in the mid-90s, uh, but still a rather rough time securing a position. And as the rejections mounted up, I began to despair, but I kept writing and publishing anyway. I think uh, I tend to be 
a contrarian voice and push against trends of intellectual fashion for reasons that are partly unconscious and, uh, you know, deep-seated and others uh, more obvious to which even I have better access. But um, I kept going and eventually did get, uh, that's true, a tenure-track position up in rural Vermont at uh, a college that now offers some graduate degrees, I understand, so it's a university now. And I didn't fit in so well, but I did a lot of good teaching and uh, had some some good students, made some good connections, but returned to New York after uh, three years. Um, some personal setbacks, had a divorce uh, I was coping with there. And in New York, um, briefly studied uh, psychology at Columbia in the notion that I might uh, become a therapist, and 9-11 happened, and I was quite taken aback by that and had already learned to suspect um, official narratives of the U.S. national security state and its counterparts in other countries and centuries and had become rather fascinated with the governing dynamics that lead some people in authority some of the time uh, to act together against the public interest in order to consolidate their power or those of their allies and um, uh, reached out to see who was doing the best work uh, deconstructing what apparently occurred on 9-11 and found this Mike Rupert character. And um, the rest uh, is history that you and I have talked about in the past, including on a very touching memorial radio show that uh, that you did in Mike's memory some years ago. And that brought me to California. And there, after casting about somewhat wretchedly for a new livelihood, um, and partaking of some uh, pretty unpleasant um, jobs, uh, picking up a lot of life experience that way. Um, I went back to graduate school and became a psychoanalyst, and I've been writing the whole time. So I've got a bunch of books about different things, and I'm making art, and it's, uh, it's all very fascinating. Yes, it sounds very fascinating. Thank you for that response. And I think Kevin has a question for us now. Question, Kevin? Yeah, hi, Jamie. Welcome back to the show. Um, Thank you. As we, as we follow the uh, outrageous provocations from the United States towards China and Russia and just about everybody, every other independent state on the planet, I often wonder uh, what Michael Rupert would say about these different events. Do you have that same kind of dichotomy happening? Yeah, I wished um, I wished just yesterday that he were around to offer some perspective on what's going on. Um, I think he anticipated some of this. Um, I confess I no longer follow um, geopolitics nearly so closely as I used to, um, partly because uh, that fellow isn't around, you know, with whom to engage about these issues and. The common discourse is so common that um, without a refreshing uh, ongoing set of alternative viewpoints, and sometimes even with one, it sometimes is more attractive simply to gather our ro rosebuds while we may. It says in Extinction Dialogues on more than, more than one uh, page and in so many words, we are certain to die, let's live. We're certain to face extinction. Let's live with urgency. And that compels me more now than uh, the goings-on of 
various um, contestants vying for power, um, competing over scarce resources. It's a somewhat limited interest. That may seem glib and dismissive, but I find myself in that position these days. Yeah, there's so much happening, it's hard to decide what to focus on because it seems to be falling apart in every single direction. Getting back to your psychoanalysis work, one of the things that I think as I study the uh, ecology of the planet unraveling is that very, very soon we're going to have a billion incredibly angry and depressed young people when they realise that their futures have been stolen from them. How do we deal with their grief and our own grief as we surf this wave? How do we deal with their grief and our own grief? As we surf this wave. Surf this wave. Ah, as we surf this wave. Yeah. A reach for Shakespeare, a reach for Sophocles, a reach for the poets. Open my ears. Uh, Wittgenstein says uh, people believe that the poets are there uh, to decorate and to distract, or words to that effect. That they have something to teach us does not occur to them. But it's the repository of wisdom, the books and school of the ages. It got us through to this point, and it's what will see us through to the end. The appeal to meaning, authentic emotional contact with other people, getting rid of bullshit can help us even if we can't get rid of what's killing us. The air clearing of speaking the truth, which as Socrates says in Plato's Apology, is the function of an orator as of a lawyer. And this is what Guy McPherson and Mike Rupert and Percy Bysshe Shelley and people like this, Helen Caldicott, Vandana Shear, they try and do this. Nobody's perfect. But the contrarian tendency the heart that is configured in the direction of opening the windows, clearing the air, and speaking the truth at the very least. This is the tribe of the tribeless with which I identify. And the truth teller can be a pain in the ass as a human being, but ooh, does the community need him or her? We certainly do. There's a great book about this called Whistleblowers, Broken Lives and Organizational Power by a brilliant psychoanalyst named C. Fred Alford, uh, A-L-F-O-R-D. They're enthusiastic about texts like those. You know, Dr. Hecht, you're one of the few people to secure a PhD, a doctor of philosophy, and actually be well-read in philosophy. And so that makes you a little unusual this, particularly in the academy, where almost nobody who has a PhD knows a single thing about philosophy. Was that one of the things that separated you as you spent time at that Vermont college? Separated me everywhere I go, uh, but I think that's because I have not yet found my relational home. But just recently in December, I moved back here to Brooklyn after 15 years uh, on the West Coast, and I do feel much more at home here. I couldn't agree more. They do take that phrase, doctor of philosophy, in its most general sense, philosophy, lover of, of wisdom. Uh, but the discipline itself that more narrowly goes by that name is the indispensable adjunct to all the other disciplines, not least because it concerns ontology, issues of what's real and what isn't, and no matter what else you study, I should think that would figure largely among your concerns, and because with epistemology, it uh, addresses the other side, 
um, of our being here and thinking, which is claims to knowledge and uh, what they're worth and the warrants for these claims and evidentiary criteria, all the stuff that a, a democratic electorate needs to know if it's going to make discerning choices about its living arrangements. A phrase I got from you, which never seems to fail. <laughs> well, in my more than 20 years of experience on various college campuses, it's I couldn't agree more that the notion of philosophy has been cast by the wayside in pursuit of more, mm, I'd say, less interesting and perhaps more pragmatic pursuits, at least at pursuing money, things like engineering and mathematics and so on. Sometime in the last few years, I think it was 2018, you hosted me at your home in the Los Angeles metropolitan area. I seem to recall your primary audience was Beverly Hills, which must have provided a lucrative list of clients. And so what really took you away from the West Coast and back to your earlier home of Brooklyn in light of the ability to make money, which, as I understand it, is the most important thing ever to happen in the history of this country. <laughs> and in, in light of the personal relationships you must have developed in 15 years on the West Coast. I needed to come back to New York. This is an ocean-facing, um, European-founded settler city on uh, 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 graveyards of uh, slaves and stolen land, and it is a cosmopolitan city uh, cobbled together by uh, Dutch, English, uh, African, and uh, settlers, captives, displaced indigenous, visitors, pilgrims, itinerant artists and clergy and people of every stripe um, mixing together and trying to make sense of the cosmos, learning from one another and trying to love each other and not kill each other for several more centuries than seems to have uh, been the case on the West Coast to the degree that my spirit is tuned to detect um, the the the, the atmosphere of uh, people living their lives in earnest and doing what we do, which is making culture. I respond to New York in a way that I could never wrap my head around uh, life in L.A. It seemed like um, not my game. And here, everything rather clicked into place, although I'm very proud of um, the some of the work I was able to do there and my having survived uh, the drawbacks of the place and the particular asymmetries between myself and LA, not so different from those between uh, me and Vermont. In some way, they were the opposite sets of problems, but it was the same thing. But feeling like the concern was too narrow, whereas I was interested in some broader, not necessarily better advised, array of uh, issues and, again, living arrangements. It just feels like a more global city that's more intellectually curious and sort of ravenous for um, generative perspective, uh, whereas LA seemed like it was more about um, uh, participation in something whose contours were by no means up to me, and no one seemed terribly interested in much of a critique about that, except one that was very internal to the values already installed there. I guess that's all I'll say about it. I didn't get LA, but... 
I'm All right. In yeah. a, speaking of love, you brought up love in, in your response just now. In our previous on-air conversation, we talked a lot about love. Nearly five years have gone by since then. Can you share with us your current thoughts on the idea and the actions of love? Uh, mercy comes to mind. Uh, falls from heaven like the rain. Um, it's all... It's all very puzzling. It's as if one invests great time and effort in coming to grips with some ethical calculus uh, about good behavior and how to be a good person and what the accounting scheme will show when finally in some imaginary afterlife or, I don't know, a real one, uh, it's all tallied up and you get to see what your brand of gendered, human, culturally shaped individuality adds up to when you look at this life that you've lived hitherto and whether you are a good person or not and how much. There is this left-brained, uh, it's more than a tendency, it's like an addiction I suppose, to moralistically check in a thousand times a minute with whether or not one is a sufficiently good person, a quantitative affair and an evaluative one. And then all of that seems to crumble to dust in illuminating right-brained moments of compassion where I'm not terribly interested in whether I deserve to give or receive this good thing which is at hand. I'm simply in awe that it exists at all and feeling privileged to participate. And don't give much of a hoot as to whether or not I can prove my right to be alive. That issue is eclipsed by the warm reality of authentic emotional contact with another person. I mean, we go through so many moves, uh, even you know, without any substance use issue at all, just looking at the states of consciousness a person passes through in any given week. In some sense, this is more than one person, these parts of self. I don't think people are nearly as well integrated as uh, we need to believe. Uh, and capitalism encourages us to think of ourselves as a bank account with a face on it. Very unitary, uh, very well-defined container with one window and one door. Um, but really, when you ask about love uh, and my more recent thoughts, it's been like those. There's a great philosopher who's writing now named Galen Strawson. There's a book called um, Things That Bother Me, the subtitle something like Love, Death, and Other Mysteries. And, so on. and in it, he's got an essay about the self as a coherent, persistent, unitary vessel. And he says, yeah, sure, the postmodernists are right. It's not really this persistent, coherent, unitary vessel. But even more than that, I don't need to defend it. Um, he says he's not terribly invested in a continuous self, and it no longer bothers him that it doesn't feel like it all hangs together. You know, I'm still carrying around memories from high school. They have nothing to do with me. This shouldn't be an opportunistic avenue to shirk responsibility for one's conduct, but it can certainly soothe the jagged excesses of the superego with its brutal surveillance as to whether or not you properly played your hand of cards uh, two and a half weeks ago. No one said it ever said it was going to be easy, did they? Hey, I'm sorry? Uh, Jamie, I have a question from Pauline Schneider, Guy's um, partner, if I'd like to yeah. ask. Quote, you might be one of the rare therapists who recognizes the environmental and existential crisis we are as a species, that, that we are facing as a species, that extinction is knocking at the door. 
Do you get many clients who have a knowledge of this? If so, do you work with them any differently than folks who aren't aware of the, of the severity of the extinction crisis? If so, how do you work with them? It happens very rarely. And I thought 10 years ago that by now, everybody would be talking about this all the time. Instead, what changed is that everybody knows about it. But it doesn't seem to rise to the fore for the reasons that you know so well, that the threat is chronic and ongoing, that it's nonlinear, that it looms in the background and takes up the entire sky. So it doesn't seem like a figure in the foreground. It doesn't seem like a feature in the landscape. It sort of suffuses the whole landscape. And it think, I think has merged with the personal sense of doom that comes with the adult recognizing or even an adolescent or um, let's hope not too early in childhood. Oh, uh, I shall vanish one day from the visible world. I think that spot in us is now occupied by something uh, that none of us should have to face, which is the erasure, not just of the whole of the self, but of the community, the culture, the species and even the biosphere. I don't know, however, when I shall perish, nor do I know whether the earth will become a lifeless Venusian inferno, or if something short of that will obtain, maybe just short of it, with snails clad in iron shells eking out subsistence by thermal vents and extremophile microbes taking 100 million years to claw their way to writing Hamlet, or maybe something well short of that that won't take as long because there will be feedback loops that fungi will, will improvise and they'll collaborate with God knows who else, um, and things will take a turn for the better. I doubt that our species um, can be saved, but uh, because I don't know, I can avail myself of that ignorance and use it to lubricate, as it were, my effort to live my best life. I think people do uh, Dr. McPherson a disservice when they stop short, uh, noticing uh, his plain talk about the extremity of our predicament and stop short without hearing the rest of what he conscientiously has to say, in which he, I dare say, seems equally invested, which is the pursuit of a humble, not grandiose and not shamed life of excellence compassionate achievement, pro-social creativity, and so on. Are we watching a societal level of cognitive dissonance and the denial of the severity of the crises? Yeah, we are. And we're well-trained in that because we've been trained to forget about various other glaring contradictions um, in these living arrangements and the historical narratives which sustain them. Today, there is what Robert Lowell called in his great 1958 poem, Memories of West Street and Lepke. There is today an agonizing reappraisal of American race relations, American relations with the indigenous inhabitants of the North American continent. On a number of fronts, the culture is actively striving to come to grips um, with its contradictions and its sins in a way that the German culture has striven to do and uh, Japanese culture has striven to avoid doing. I'm drawing now, oversimplifying, upon a brilliant book called The Wages of Defeat, um, if I have it right, by Ian Baruma, contrasting those two cultures. And with them, those of various settler societies like Australia, New Zealand, 
um, and Israel and the United States and South Africa. Those last two were paired by Robert F. Kennedy uh, in his brilliant speech at Cape Town. He was talking for five minutes about the United States, and the whole South African audience believed he was talking about South Africa. When he revealed that, he said, I speak, of course, of the United States, and they all burst out laughing in appreciative gratitude that, that he had the compassion to notice the parallels uh, and not merely view them as alien monsters. But these are contradictions um, that we haven't looked at. Infinite economic growth on a finite planet. The cornucopian 18th century fantasia, starry-eyed Walt Disney ideology um, that drives our notions of individual success, our notions of masculinity, our notions of self-respecting emancipated womanhood, uh, our notions of uh, individual social capital, attractiveness, um, all the rest of it is geared to uh, an omnicidal set of behaviors. And that's, that's very vexing. And a culture can't do the job of a culture and drives us instead into self-defeating avenues. Now, this is rosy talk in a way, because it seems to imply that there's some culture in better working order just down the street. And if only we could reach that, we'd be all set. Derek Jensen has been illuminating uh, of the ways that civilization is always premised on infinite economic growth, a kind of exponential exploitation of the land base. But by the same token, he and other critics uh, have been lucid in showing some episodes where they did apply the break. They did pull back a little bit. I remember Mike Rupert uh, made some waves during a congressional hearing when he asked, do you know, of, I don't remember whom he was asking, but he said uh, to the panel, of, do you know of any episode in which an imperial project by any nation in history proved too destructive for its perpetrators so that they called it back? They slowed down. They reversed course. Um, the question seemed uh, too abstract and maybe even grandiose um, to experience distant, but it was prescient and important. And, you know, one spot where you can find an answer is uh, Jared Diamond's book, which draws on the work of Joseph Tainter, uh, The Collapse of Complex Societies. Diamond's book, of course, called Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed. And he speaks of uh, uh, Meiji Japan addressing its deforestation problem with a rather autocratic but very effective top-down solution that prevented any further erosion of Japanese soil because it was decreed that no one may cut down any further trees. Um, in her climate change book from, what, four years ago, uh, Naomi um, uh, Klein wrote that anti-authoritarians everywhere on left and right alike must lament uh, that climate change has become unstoppable because now only uh, broad authoritarian top-down solutions can possibly address what we want to cope with. Uh, that's a bitter message, but I think there's some truth to it. Of course, had we a government that was elected by an informed um, democratic polity that had access to a public university and could think for itself, we might well be able to implement highly organized um, but distributed solutions the way that the people of Havana were able to do when Soviet oil stopped coming to Cuban shores. The North Koreans starved. The Cubans planted urban gardens. For better and worse, we don't have that kind of society, obviously. And in a related note, you mentioned a few minutes ago that we are not as integrated as we need to be. 
Can you talk a little bit more about that? We are not as integrated as we need to be at the level of individuals. Are you talking about society? Are you talking about a community? I think that phrase may have come out because I was thinking about Galen Strawson's um, uh, arguments about the coherence of the self and how um, odd it can sometimes feel that one is expected to marshal all the deeds and words that one has, you know, done or said since, well, the day one was born and, and own and identify with all of it. And yet so much of it is very foreign to us. The cerebral cortex isn't even fully um, made, fully grown until roughly age 26 um, in adults of our species. Um, it's as if yeah, that's you, know, you, you have a self which is equipped to participate in American culture and another self which is equipped to critique it, another which yearns to destroy it, another which yearns to repair it, another that wants to opt out. They don't always talk to each other. That's all. Yeah, you know, that um, not quite developed brain power that we have until the age of 26 is something that I don't think very many university and college professors understand. They're just not aware of it. But cognitive capacity is actually increasing at the time college students are in college and doing so quite rapidly, nothing compared obviously to the very early years of a person's life. But still, it's very significant. Did you ever have that kind of conversation when you were on campus or off campus with academics, the, the, the increasing cognitive ability of the brain up until the mid-20s? I don't think they ever said the biological part of it, but there was an inspired, uh, humane educator um, already in his 80s, even then, I think, named Joe Vigilante at Adelphi University, where I got my bachelor's degree. Uh, and he gave me a book called uh, Forms of Intellectual and Ethical Development in the College Years by um, uh, William Perry. And it's a, an extraordinary book that lays out this schema of um, stages of intellectual development, at the beginning of which one is confident that there are certainties, cosmic truths inscribed on tablets in the sky and that adults have access to this and children don't. And this becomes more and more relativistic. Uh, and protean and perspectival until by the end of it, one has had a crisis in which earlier um, uh, worldviews uh, were lost and it seemed uh, tragic and irreversible, weathered that crisis and emerged into an intellectual mellowness, um, maybe it even merits the term maturity, where there are no uh, transcendent transhistorical truths to which people have ready access that can be readily exploited, but this does not discredit human knowledge on that account nor render all of life meaningless. One isn't stuck in a postmodern ontological snowfield, as Alan Grossman called it, um, meandering everywhere and nowhere for lack of meaning, um, but one isn't entirely the captive of the constraints of human nature or tradition either. I wanted to mention to you before I forget, I published a paper in uh, a European journal last year, um, comes out of Romania, it's called Word and Text, a journal of literary studies and linguistics. And I mentioned you in it, Guy, it's called the Prescription for a New Model University for the Humanities. 
And mm-hmm. its argument essentially is that the top-heavy, uh, ruinously expensive degree-conferring university of today um, is that way because it grants degrees which have to remain well-accredited, a process that demands the labor of a cadre of highly paid administrators. But once those accredited degrees have lost their value, that whole top-heavy, high-energy, complex, highly centralized, um, status-oriented institution, that whole system, uh, I think will have to crumble. And grassroots education organizations may spring up in their place rather like the way the primitive church in Europe sprung up when Roman imperial institutions began to fail to service the population and with clinics and all the rest of those sort of equivalent things. And so these, these little shoestring organizations, local in character, loosely federated perhaps or not, sprang up in their place to meet needs with local situated knowledges. And I think there will be, after the internet, time permitting, climate permitting, face-to-face brick-and-mortar schools on the analogy of uh, um, a, a mental health clinic that doesn't take insurance or um, a, a, uh, a church group, a subscription-based thing where one pays some membership fee and then studies that which the teachers are prepared to teach. And I spoke of your work uh, as an academic, as a truth-teller, as a person who applies academic values of, of debate uh, to the real-world conditions at hand without exempting from that uh, investigation the hand that feeds it, uh, to really just look at the truth uh, to the best of one's ability. I don't mean to abuse the term as if that were you know, um, plain and simple. It certainly isn't. Uh, but I wanted to mention that 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 uh, I do um, quote your work and uh, tell a thumbnail sketch of your story in it. Well, thank you, and I look forward to seeing a copy of that. Perhaps we can talk about it after we get off the show here. Sure. Um, it seems to me that uh, well, I left active service at a major university about twelve years ago, and I thought the system was crumbling already. I can hardly believe that the university and college systems are still intact and operating in much the same maudlin, immoral, capitalistic-driven way that they've been doing for decades now. So is there any hope? do, Do you really see the system returning to the grassroots so that we have somebody like Socrates going around and asking questions long enough that the questions become uncomfortable and so they kill him for it? Is is that the kind of future that you imagine any time within our lifetimes? I think it happens every day and that uh, we have to believe that in the interstices of this grid, there's good work being done in education, in psychotherapy, in the arts, um, the fine arts, the performing arts. There's good work being done in the building of homes. For people, there's good work being done in wildlife rehabilitation and release. 
There's good work being done in all manner of uh, avenues of human endeavor that we don't see. And it can be very difficult to sustain one's faith that all of that is still going on. But we survived because the one-size-fits-all, modular, sanitized, anti-subjective, quantity-only version of all of these services is not all that's there. We're alive because there was some good parenting here and some real friendship there and a humane art teacher in high school over there and a grounded, decent guidance counselor, um, uh, some, some enabling figure that really cared about that person. This happens in fascist regimes. It happens in communist totalitarianism. Um, the university you want is the one which fosters the growth of more and more open-hearted, curious people. Those institutions, I think, do exist and are mostly invisible, and I think that they always will exist and will always be mostly invisible. I don't think the, I don't think the system is likely ever to look better, but it may come to be better. Speaking of integrative work, you're a poet, you're a historian, you're a psychologist, you have strong numerical skills. What the heck? How did you slip through the system with those kinds of values? Lots of suffering and <laughs> making art. <laughs> Lots of messy, gross suffering and making art. Um, some of the results of which is very beautiful indeed, uh, and I wouldn't trade it for the moon. Um, not sure what I would do with the moon. It's uh, it's complex. <laughs> it's complex. There's a line in uh, in the Iliad: "Never to be refused are the gifts of the gods." Oh, you know, yeah, you have... Go ahead, Kevin. Go on, go ahead. Well, um, if, if you're given a gift, you can't turn it down and you can't know what it costs. You simply have this gift and must strive to be a good steward of it, even if it should emerge that the darker and more difficult aspects of life with which you struggle are intimately bound up with those gifts. The poetry of the divine seems to have to do with the way that it can unite contraries like that and show you the tragic consciousness from which alone one right. can catch a glimpse of how this could possibly be right. Yeah. Right. Yes. And the gift of obviously can be painful. And speaking of painful and our relationships and how we pursue truth in the world, you had an interesting relationship with Michael Rupert, as I understand it. And I don't know nearly enough about it. And it's more than seven years he's been gone now. Can you talk about your relationship with Michael? I think that because Kevin and I were strongly influenced by his work, that's one of the reasons people listen to this show. And so let's dig into that a little deeper to the extent that you're willing and able to talk about it. Well, the short version is he was a good friend and he was a good boss. Um, he, you know, we talk about suffering. This man really had a lot to cope with, uh, 
very severe trauma background and just resilient as hell. Uh, he believed in the existing institutions of the culture in the early part of his life uh, much more than I ever remember doing. He became a police officer. Wouldn't dream of doing that in a million years for all kinds of reasons. Um, and I need not hasten to add the respect that balances out and utterance like that because, of course, it's in there. Um, I'm going to assume an awareness of the complexities in the listening audience, lest anybody take offense. Mike became a police officer in the Wilshire Division of the Los Angeles Police Department, and he worked narcotics. He didn't become a detective, but I think he was on the way toward that, and he achieved very high ratings and wasn't expecting to talk about him, so I haven't gone back and looked at any of the data about this, and I'll stop now because I don't want to get it wrong, but he was identified with the powers that be because he believed in an America that had been tended to him in his boyhood, and he came from a family which was part of the national security state, and out he walked having done all the right things in the belief that he would put in virtue and get out happiness and responsibility. And instead, he was he became caught up in a seduction by the intelligence community that eventually one could say destroyed him. That's not how I see it, but they wanted him to become one of them and um, help them to conduct their operations, um, uh, which were transgressive of the law of human rights and of human decency and dignity. And he refused and he paid uh, quite a price, received death threats from his fellow officers and was made homeless and so on. And all this is narrated in a biography of him called Scout by our friend Jenna Orkin and uh, in his own um, writings. And you can see on YouTube the famous clip of him confronting uh, the CIA director, John Deutsch, at that time, 1995, at Locke High School in L.A., uh, about what they were doing. So I came to learn all that about him. And uh, I had a great deal of admiration. I was a much younger person then. And uh, I no longer poke the bear. Um, but back then, um, there was the Bush crime family takeover of American uh, electoral politics in 2000. And with it, the Patriot Act. And my whole generation is deeply shaken by that, in a way that the Kennedy assassination had shaken our parents. And here was a man who, for all the world, was bearing witness to that uh, fearlessly. I was not an investigative reporter for Mike. I was a language guy. I would uh, edit the stories. I'd write some of them myself. And I would write these several paragraph long introductions that would come at the top of other people's stories that came in. And so I was his assistant managing editor for, I guess, three years at From the Wilderness, his newsletter, Vox Clamantis in Deserto, a voice crying out in the wilderness, the social critic as pariah uh, from the Bible. Because people would assume this was about wilderness stuff, which is much more your bailiwick as a fire ecologist. And then he wrote his book uh, in 2004, and I edited it. Um, and uh, someone once rather maliciously said that I ghost wrote the book. That's not true. Uh, I wrote a couple of pages of preface, a few paragraphs here and there, but absolutely not. It's Mike's, it's Mike's book. And I came up with the subtitle, yeah. Crossing the Rubicon, the Decline of the American Empire at the End of the Age of Oil. Uh, he was at my uh, wedding in 2008 uh, to uh, my late wife, uh, Sava, uh, 
uh, passed away uh, two years ago now, but um, Mike was there to give us a toaster oven. <laughs> so for years after he, <laughs> after he took his own life every time to make a sandwich in the toaster oven, it's the Mike, Mike Rupert Memorial Toaster Oven, I call it. So, yeah. Was that a metaphor? Oh, I don't know. It's just, uh, you know, you don't want to be running around crying all the time. You have to laugh about this shit instead. And that was one of the ways I'd do it. Absolutely. We had a yeah. close friend recently commit suicide. And oh. unlike with Michael Rupert, when I was accused of causing that suicide the next day, yeah. the suicide of our friend took two or three weeks before somebody accused me of being responsible for it. Our friend was deeply impacted by the pandemic and the long-term lockdown because he was an extremely gregarious human being. How have you been advising your clients in relation to the pandemic? And what have you found helps people deal better in lockdown or partial lockdown, whatever you're going through now in the New York City metropolitan area? Well, I want to offer a, a little exercise uh, in case this appeals to you. I wonder, Guy, if you might see in your mind's eye as on the display screen of a computer, uh, the two icons on that display screen that are those two utterly unjust unfair, untrue, and mistaken accusations. And click on both of those and select them. And I'd like you to drag those into the trash now and let them go where they will be deleted. That's my suggestion. And that's the kind of thing that I might offer to a client. It's a, a mental exercise, which while merely imaginary is also imaginal it is an action in the imagination on materials that are themselves mental so that it can be effective. The sort of thought is appropriate to the psyche. You don't need a sort of steel for it so that this can, in fact, this sort of thing be very functional indeed. I'm afraid I was so moved by the awfulness of what they did that I forgot what you asked me. What was it? <laughs> That's all right. I appreciate the mm, exercise. And it's interesting in that I've been telling people for 10 years to let go or be dragged. Yet I seem to have more trouble than anybody at letting go of something like this. So our friend was deeply affected by the pandemic and also the long-term lockdown as an extremely social human being. So how have you been advising your clients in relation to the pandemic or what remains of it? And have you found anything that helps people deal better with the current set of living arrangements, different as it is from the one that we had a year and a half ago? Yeah. Uh, and I do remember now the context of, of that question, how it emerged in the conversation. So um, to revisit that, I want to point to two uh, books because um, into that. And I think it's a good general approach to, to life. One is written by my sister, uh, Jennifer Michael Hecht, and it's called Stay, A History of Suicide and the Arguments Against It. And that book has saved quite a few lives. Uh, and the other is called How I Stayed Alive When My Brain Was Trying to Kill Me. And I've forgotten the name of the woman who wrote that book, but it, too, has saved a hell of a lot of people. Um, so I would start there. And then, of course, the, the more general answer is, uh, um, well, it's a great place. Um, it's a nonprofit. Um, it's 
thrives on partly on donations in Los Angeles called the Relational Center. And I trained there for my marriage and family therapy license years ago. Uh, I was an intern there in the in the uh, you know about six, seven, eight years ago for a long time. And their slogan was "Isolation hurts. We help." Zoom contact with other people is very helpful and important. Being out with other people several feet apart, outdoors, very, very important. And I am a believer in this vaccine technology. Um, I also think that the lab leak hypothesis is correct. Nicholson Baker is a great novelist and investigative reporter, and his article in New York Magazine of that title, The Lab Leak Hypothesis, um, fully persuaded me. This is novel coronavirus uh, from 2019. Uh, coronavirus uh, 7 it looks to be the product of a uh, level 4 uh, bioweapons lab in Wuhan, China, with international participation, which took the spike protein from the uh, pangolin coronavirus with its enhanced infectivity and grafted it onto the, or spliced it onto, um, you know, genetically, not mechanically, uh, the bat, uh, one of these bats coronaviruses with uh, with a great deal of virulence. And when you do gain-of-function research like this, there's always a risk that it will be accidentally released. That Wuhan lab apparently had a pretty bad security uh, record. And then we have to cope with this. So uh, I can experience uh, gratitude and intellectual awe at the mRNA vaccine technology, and I do. I am profoundly grateful for that vaccine, the people who created it, people who got it to me. Uh, and I'm astonished that that our species figured out how to make a memory RNA vaccine. And at the same time, I deplore gain-of-function research and the the appalling, um, uh, just mind-boggling hubris of uh, that type of activity and its paper-thin rationale that only by making this Faustian bargain uh, and taunting Armageddon uh, can you prevent your uh, potential opponents from doing the same thing? The point is to prevent it from happening. It doesn't matter who's doing it, because then a virus can leak, and then we, we deal with situations like these. They have not prompted a national conversation about gain-of-function research, let alone a national conversation or world conversation about shutting down the bioweapons labs of all these competing would-be and real imperial powers. Uh, it's rather like the nuclear weapons debate with mutual assured destruction. Uh, it's, it's obvious what to do, but nobody with the power has the humanity, and nobody with the humanity has the power. This may change. I can't tell. Yeah, but humans are the masters of the Faustian bargain. I don't see us walking away from any one of those anytime soon. When we're loaded with so much hubris, we think we can fix anything that we break, and we don't even recognize that we've broken half the things we've broken. You are the person so, I want to ask this question of, if this is a good time to ask you a question. Sure. Do, do you think that had we listened, say, to President Carter, um, or maybe to somebody else, but, for example, do you suppose that we could have terraformed Mars and do you regard it as currently impossible I, I regard it as currently impossible and perhaps we could have but it's a little bothersome that 
brings to mind the Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. Uh, among the last chronicles, short stories, were was one in which the people who made it to Mars realized that they hadn't changed their ways. And so they were in a death to the it's a fight to the death among two tribes that formed on Mars. And as they looked back on Mars, it was, I mean, on Earth, Earth was blowing itself up. So the people on Earth didn't change rapidly enough in the right direction. So hatred still ruled the day. And it carried over when they got to Mars as well. So, you know, we might have the technology. We've always had technology that was beyond our wisdom, in my opinion. And look where that has taken us so far. Maybe we could terraform Mars, but ought we? I mean, could, could we Denmark form it? Maybe, like but <laughs> but then then what are we going to do with the humans? You know, it seems like we're not changing what's inside most of us at nearly a rapid enough clip. And this is something that that Michael talked about a lot was a change in human consciousness that I just have not seen. Have you? Some of it's pretty impressive and some is quite a mess. One has to be yeah. heartbroken and, um, well, I wanted to say hopeful at the same time, but uh, that word's just a placeholder. It has something to do with humility rather than grandiosity or shame. But that's only half of it, and I don't know what the other half of it is. This business of uh, mankind growing. You know, I think that some people are there, but I suspect some people have always been there. They've always been of the mental and emotional condition to move forward in an illuminating, positive way for humanity. There's, I, I don't doubt that there have always been people who fell into that category, but I think they, or we, are overwhelmed at this point by the sociopaths who are pulling the strings of empire. I just, I don't see things changing rapidly enough in the right direction to give me a hell of a lot of hope. Yeah. What do you do? Well, we have reached the end of our time here. So I'm afraid we're going to have to leave that question for another day. Maybe you can put it in your next book-length work of poetry. What do okay. we do? What do you do? I think that would be great. One thing Thank I have you very doing, much. I'm I've sorry? Been making, I've been making little clay sculptures and sticking them up around the neighborhood in Brooklyn and photographing them on my Instagram, which is Jamie Hecht, J-A-M-E-Y-H-E-C-H-T. That's one of the things I've been doing to cope, sculpting. Thank you so much for having me on, Guy. I had a wonderful time, as always. That's awesome. So have I. Thank you very much. Kevin, can you take us home? Yes, thank you very much for your time, Jamie. And thanks to our listeners today, as well as AstraZen for our theme music. You can catch NBL on PRN the first Tuesday of the month at 3 p.m. Eastern time. 
Our next episode is scheduled to air live on the 1st of June 2021 in the United States. We have a conversation with Dr. Andrew Christ, the Gund Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Vermont. Dr. Grist has worked on the cryosphere with several, several expeditions to Antarctica and Greenland. If you missed that broadcast, you can find the shows in the archives at prn.fm, the Podbean, or at Stitcher, and feel free to rate us on, on iTunes. Also, continue to follow the Nature Bats last blog, guymcpherson.com, for further updates and interviews and speaking tours, and you can keep up with my work at kevinhester.live. But until the next time, Remember, the dominant culture has been very clever, but in the end... Nature bats last. <laughs>